All right, if you got your Bible, open to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, we're going to look at verses 10 through 12 this morning. Uh, we're continuing on with what we started last week, and today we're going to focus on the big D, and I don't mean Dallas. All right, I've been, been debating that joke all week. I probably shouldn't have made it. Didn't go over that well. All right, anyways, wasn't that funny. All right, this morning we're going to focus in on divorce. As we continue looking at uh, divorce and uh, marriage, Jesus was asked a question as we looked at last week. What do you do about divorce? How do you handle that? What is your perspective on that? And so as Jesus handled that, we're going to handle it as well. So before we get into the passage, before we get into the text, let me start with this. We're going to bookend today's sermon with grace. Because whenever you deal with a, a, a tough a topic or a tough situation, I believe we always want to remember God's grace. We always want to remember God's faithfulness, God's forgiveness, God's mercy. So we're going to start off with this. There's still grace in divorce. Uh, divorce is not the unforgivable sin. We've looked at that in the book of Mark. The unforgivable sin is the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. Every other sin will be forgiven if we place our faith and trust in Jesus and we ask him for forgiveness. So we understand that even uh, though divorce might not be God's plan, there is still grace in divorce. And also, we're going to look at this a little bit more and unpack it a little bit more. But if you are uh, divorced and you had an unbiblical divorce and you were remarried, your marriage is not invalid. Uh, God does not cast dispersion on your current marriage. All that is covered under His grace. And so let me encourage you with this. If you're in this room and this is where you find yourself, don't feel that, that, that me and the Bible are beating up on you. If you've dealt with this, if you've dealt with this before God, then, then you're under grace. And there, there is forgiveness there, and there is mercy there. So anytime we run into any sin that we've already been forgiven of, let it draw us back to God. Let it move our focus in, in thankfulness and worship back to God for who He is and, and what He has done for us and the fact that He has forgiven us. So we don't live under the oppression. We don't live under the guilt of past sins. We focus on the grace of God and we thank him for what he has done for us. Secondly, reconciliation and restoration is always the goal for marriage. Now, we're going to look at the, the, the reasons that are biblically allowed for a divorce. But we understand that though they are allowed, divorce is never commanded. Even when we look at the reasons that it's given, divorce is not the commandment. God's heart is for reconciliation, reconciliation and restoration. God's heart is for forgiveness. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32 says this, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. As with every relationship we have on this earth, God's heart is that we would show each other grace and love and mercy and forgiveness. Now, I understand that's not always easy. I understand that's tough, especially if it's the person who is closest to you on this earth, who is the one who has hurt you or wronged you. But God has not called us to an easy life. God has called us to a life of trusting Him and, and showing how great and awesome He is. And so that's... God's goal for marriage is always reconciliation and restoration. Now, there are two biblical allowances for divorce and remarriage, and they're both not covered in the passage that we're in. So what we're going to do is we're going to start off in Mark chapter 10, where we've been going through the book of Mark, and we're going to use this to springboard us into some other passages throughout Scripture. 
Because here's what the responsible thing to do whenever you're looking at a topic. There's a topic like divorce. There are several places where it's mentioned. We look at one last week in the Old Testament. We're going to look at a couple more this week in the New Testament. And so whenever you go to a topic, you want to basically try to get all the, 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 the spots in Scripture where it talks about that topic, all the verses, all the, all the things that are said by Jesus or the epistles or, or the Old Testament. You want to get it all together. Then you want to develop your belief on that topic based on getting all those verses together. So we're going to start in Mark chapter 10, and we're going to use this to springboard us uh, into some other passages so we get a, a whole biblical p- picture on what the Bible says about divorce. So let's start with Mark chapter 10, and we'll read verses 10 through 12. I'll pray, and then we're just going to start going. Mark chapter 10, verse 10 and 12. So Jesus has already responded to the the Pharisees that asked this question about about divorce and uh, about God's plan and God's purpose. So verse 10, it says, And in the house his disciples asked him again about this matter. So they get alone, just him and the twelve. And they ask him, Basically, the the same question. Kind of help us understand this more. And it says in verse 11, And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you now. God, I pray that as we look at your word, I pray that you uh, would give me the words to speak clearly uh, and honestly and gracefully about your truth. Father God, I pray that you would speak through your Holy Spirit and your word uh, clearer and better and louder and more effective than my words ever could. And Father God, I pray that you are glorified and that we are uh, encouraged. And God, we leave here trusting your greatness, trusting your plan, and trusting your love. It's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. All right. So the first biblical allowance for divorce is adultery. Now, in our passage that we have right here, Jesus does not mention that. Jesus does not mention an excuse or clause saying, well, there's, there's a reason for this. He just says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, we've mentioned this before, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar. They're called the, the synoptic gospels. They kind of follow the same storyline. They have a lot of the same stories. Sometimes they're, they're worded a little, a little bit differently. Sometimes they're expanded. Sometimes they're shortened, but they follow the same kind of, kind of idea. And so in Mark and Luke that, that deal with this, they don't use the the excuse clause, I guess, of sexual morality or of adultery uh, to allow a divorce. And here's why I believe that they don't. It was commonly accepted among the Jews, and really even among the the, the Greeks and the Romans and and other nations that surrounded them, that, that adultery was always allowed as an excuse or as a reason for divorce. Last week, we talked about within the Pharisees, there were two different groups. There was the more conservative group that said, hey, Adultery is the only reason you should get divorced. And there was the more liberal uh, group that said, hey, uh, even if she burns your food, that's reason enough for divorce. With both of those groups, adultery would have been accepted. So it was just understood that that was accepted. But so we can deal with the passage that says it specifically. Flip over to Matthew chapter 19 in your Bibles. Matthew comes right before Mark. Matthew 19, we're going to look at verse 9. 
Now, this is the exact same story uh, that we're looking at in Mark chapter 10. So if you start in verse 1, it's the same thing. They come to the area, they're asked the question. He talks about the hardest of the heart and their certificate and everything else of divorce, everything that we looked at last week. It says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual morality and marries another commits adultery. Now, there's three things that I want us to see in this passage. First, Jesus specifically says divorce is allowed if caused by sexual immorality. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality. That's the, 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 the clause. That's the excuse. That's the, the exception to the rule. That if, that if there has been sexual immorality committed by one partner within the marriage, it frees the other partner up to leave, the, or the other spouse up to leave the marriage, to get a divorce where there is no sin attached to it. It does not create adultery moving forward for the one who divorced because of sexual immorality. Morality. Now, understand when you see that word sexual morality, the, that's the, the kind of the generic term in the Bible that kind of covers any sex outside or any sexual act that is outside the confines of marriage. So he's specifically talking about those who are married, any sexual activity out that, outside of that is an excuse. So that would be adultery. Uh, so that is what he is talking about, that adultery is that excuse clause. Second, where divorce is permitted, so is remarriage. The second thing I want us to see in this passage. Now look at the verse again. Verse 9, it says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sex morality and marries another commits adultery. That except there not only applies to the divorce, but also to the remarriage. Read it this way. And I, let's take the exception out and add it at the end. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery except for sexual morality. That exception clause refers to both the action of the divorce, that if, that if there's been uh, adultery committed, that uh, the, the, the divorce is basically a, a sinless divorce in the fact of you're not held guilty if you divorce your spouse because they uh, committed sexual immorality. But also it applies to the remarriage that you are free to remarry without that sin of adultery starting off your marriage. It applies to both. It fits both things, the way that it is written, what Jesus is saying. And we're going to see it when we look in another passage in 1 Corinthians, but where God gives the excuse for divorce, remarriage is also freely permitted. Now understand once again, the excuse there is given, but Jesus does not command divorce. Third, the remarriage from an unbiblical divorce is not an invalid marriage. Now, let's read the verse one more time. It says, so I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual morality marries another and marries another commits adultery. Now, we cannot get away from the fact that, the, that this marriage starts with sin. He says that it is the committing of adultery. So we cannot uh, whitewash that or get rid of that to, to make things easier for us. What we need to do is, is if you are a, a couple that is remarried from an unbiblical divorce, then if you have not already, then, then you need to, as a couple, come together and go before God and, and, and let God's grace deal with this. Remember, 1 John 1.9 says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
Confess, and that sin is gone. It is, this is not, I don't believe that this is an, an adultery that follows your marriage for the entire length of your marriage. Whenever we see God's grace mentioned, whenever we see God's forgiveness offered to believers, it is offered fully. It is offered completely. It is offered where it covers everything. So if that adultery is confessed, if that adultery is repented of, then that adultery is forgiven. For it to stay there would, would say something uh, about God's grace not being big enough, not being strong enough, not being able to offer forgiveness and cleanse from that sin. Also, Jesus says, uh, and remarries another. I believe that what Jesus is saying there is that that, vow, that marriage is a marriage. It's not something that God does not recognize. And here's why I say that. Here's why I believe that. I believe that if this was not a valid marriage, then Jesus would not have said married another. He would have said something like living with someone who's not your spouse or, or living uh, uh, in this relationship that's not marriage. And I believe that he would say that because he has said that. In John chapter 4, when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, they're having this conversation. In verses 16 through 18, he says this to her. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus, referring to the woman at the well, says that yes, the, 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 the relationship that you have right now, it is not a marriage. The relationship you have right now, you're just living with someone who is not your spouse. He he spells it out that that relationship is not a relationship the way that it should be. The fact that he tells when he's teaching the disciples that he says, if you marry another, shows us or shows us that this marriage is valid in God's sight. Also, if it was not, or if it wasn't a marriage that you should be in, then the only way out is divorce. And divorce, if that's a sin, then once again, it creates this whole kind of messed up cycle. And so... The divorce or the, the remarriage, even if it follows an unbiblical divorce, is still valid in God's sight. I believe according to God's word. So that's the first allowance for divorce, is sexual morality or uh, adultery within the marriage. The second allowance for divorce is abandonment. Flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. In this passage, Paul is talking about marriage. Uh, he's talking about uh, roles of husbands and wives. And Well, let's just read verses 12 through 16. It says, To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of the wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. We'll kind of talk about that very briefly in a second. Verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such case, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, before we really kind of get into the passage, let me just say this. 
where he starts off and he says, to the rest I say, and then you see in parentheses, uh, I, not the Lord. This is not Paul saying, hey, this does not come from God, uh, but this is from some kind of a human source. This is not Paul denying inspiration or giving human opinion, but it's simply a way of saying that Jesus had not spoken on this situation and God had not previously given revelation on the matter as Paul was writing. Remember, when Jesus was on the earth, there were no Christians. Christianity did not start until Jesus was dead, buried, resurrected, and ascended into heaven. The Holy Spirit came. That's when Christianity formed. That's when the first Christians came onto the scene. So Jesus never had to deal with the reality of a Christian being married to an unchristian. It just, just didn't happen when he was on the earth. So Paul is saying, look, this is something that Jesus has not spoken about. This is something that God has not spoken about. And so this is basically the introduction of this idea from God's perspective. This is not a denial of, of inspiration. This is not saying this is not God's word, that Paul's kind of throwing his own ideas in there. What this is saying is God has not briefly spoken on that. This is our introduction. So, the specific issue that we're going to see in verses 12 and 13, the specific issue is whether a believer should stay married to an unbeliever or divorce them. Now, remember, when Paul wrote his letters to these churches, Paul is dealing with specific issues within the church. Maybe the church asks some questions. Sometimes there's things that Paul knows is going on that needs to be addressed. So there is something going on in this church, or there's been a question asked that says, hey, look, when I got married, me and my husband, or me and my wife, were both unbelievers. And since then, I've become a Christian, but they have not. Should I stay married to them, or because they're not believers, maybe they're practicing the pagan faith, maybe they're agnostic, maybe they're atheists, whatever the case may be, because of their unbelief, should I stay married to them, or should I divorce them? It was a very real question that was being asked. So here's what Paul says in verses 12 and 13. It says, To the rest I say, not I but the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Paul's response to the people, Paul's stance that Paul is taking, that God is taking, that if you are married to an unbeliever, if you are a believer and your spouse is a Christian, then you are not free to seek a divorce on that matter or on that grounds. That as a Christian, you are to stay in that marriage. As a Christian, you are to love your spouse. As a Christian, you are to love them as well as you can. Have fun with them. Enjoy their time. Be married to them. Let it be a pleasurable thing, a good thing. Just because they don't know Jesus, that is not a reason to, to cast them aside or think less of them or to love them less or even try to get out of the marriage. But you are to, to love them with your whole heart the same way you would if you were loving a spouse who was a believer. Stay together. Keep your marriage strong. And not only that, but he goes on to say in, verses 14, uh, in verse 14, he says, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of the wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be um, unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, 
He does not mean here saying holy and clean and unclean that that simply being married to a believer means that you are saved. That's not what he's saying right here. We understand that the only way to find salvation is to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, recognizing who he is and what he has done for us on the cross. That is the only way to heaven. That is the only way to salvation. That is the only way to have a relationship with God is through his son, Jesus Christ, not your spouse. But what he's saying is, is there are natural benefits or natural blessings that come from having a relationship with a believer. If as a believer you are loving God and and God decides to, to bless you for some reason, that blessing spills over to your spouse. If as a believer you stand for morality or you stand for character and doing things right, and so when it comes to Doing your taxes, say, you're going to to do them uh, and stick to the law and and have character and integrity when you do those, then that's going to impact the the life of those who live with you. Your character, your integrity, your love for God, the blessings that come from that or the responsibilities that come with that that impact your morality, that impact who you are, will affect those that you have relationships with. And And the good thing is that there's a possibility that through your lifestyle, through you loving God, following God, worshiping God, living a life where God is magnified, that they might in turn come to accept Jesus Christ because of your witness, because of the life that you have with Christ. And so Paul says, no, do not get divorced. In fact, stay together because it might actually, God might use that to draw them to him for salvation. So here's our answer. Christians should love and stay married to their unbelieving spouses. So the question is, should a believer divorce an unbeliever? God says through Paul, the apostle, the author of 1 Corinthians, no, they should not. They should stay together. They should love together. It should not impact their marriage in the sense of uh, they should not love each other less or treat each other wrongly or treat each other differently. They should still love each other and love each other as strongly as they would if they're partner if their spouse was a believer. So he, get, he kind of jumps forward in verses 15 and 16, and he answers another question. What is the Christian's response if the unbeliever abandons the marriage? Let's look at verses 15 and 16. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So Paul says, all right, here's another scenario. Let's say you have this marriage between a believer and an unbeliever. Let's say the unbeliever decides, you know what? I'm tired of this. I'm done with this. I found something better. Don't want to be married to Whatever the reasoning is, you burnt my toast. Whatever the reasoning is. And the unbeliever decides to leave the marriage. The unbeliever says, I don't want to be married to you anymore. The unbeliever says, I've found something different. I'm tired of this life. I want a new life. What is the Christian to do? What is their response when it is the unbeliever seeking uh, to end the marriage or to abandon the marriage? Paul says, let me get his words right. Paul says in in verse 15, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Paul says if you are a believer, or a believer and you're married to an unbeliever, that unbeliever wants to leave the marriage, abandon the marriage, Paul says, let it be so, you are not enslaved. Paul says, 
If the unbeliever wants to leave the marriage and they want to get a divorce, they are fine to go. You are not enslaved. Meaning, you are not held under the guilt of adultery. You're not held under the guilt of having a, a divorce that was a sin because of your actions. You are not enslaved. You're not bound to that marriage anymore. Those vows have been broken by your unbelieving spouse who has left. Therefore, you have freedom to continue on in your life. You have freedom to remarry. You are free. You are not guilty of anything when it comes to that divorce. That you are not enslaved. And then he goes on and he talks about how do you know um, husband whether you will save your wife or wife whether you will save your husband. What he's saying here is, well, let, me read, let me read the way John MacArthur phrased it because he phrased it better than I could. He said, some may have been reluctant to go to their unsaved, or to let go of their unsaved spouses, thinking they could evangelize the spouse by hanging on to the marriage uh, for the purpose of seeing them converted. Paul says there are no such assurances. Paul says, look, go in peace or, or live in peace with each other. He says, look, you could try to hang on to this marriage, to this person who does not want you, to this person who does not want to be married to you anymore. You could deny divorce. You could fight. You could say we're staying married regardless and, and make both of you miserable. He says, but there's no guarantee that your actions are going to cause them to be saved. So Paul says live in peace. Now, this does not mean that we should not fight for our marriages. This does not mean that if this is you in this situation, that you should not pray for your marriage, that you should not pray for your spouse, that if your spouse tries to leave, that you should not try to get them back. You should. But what Paul is saying is there comes a point, there comes a time where if they're going to leave, and that no matter what efforts you're trying, you're trying counseling, you're trying praying, you're trying talking to them, no matter what your efforts are, they are out the door Paul says, let it be so. You are not enslaved. So, the Christian, who, or the, the Christian should fight for their marriage, but not live under guilt if their unbelieving spouse leaves. So, in this passage, Paul specifically dealing with Christians married to unbelievers, Paul says, no, you should not seek a divorce just because your spouse doesn't know Jesus. And then Paul says, if your spouse who does not know Jesus chooses to leave the marriage, then you don't have to live under that guilt. You're not enslaved. You are free to move forward. So this brings up to me another question. Does this passage apply to a relationship between two Christians? Now, Paul specifically said, if an unbeliever is married to a believer, that sets our context. We cannot go back in there and change that just to kind of get what we want. We allow Scripture to set the stage. We allow Scripture to set the standard. Then we conform to what God's Word says. So let me just say this. This passage does not refer to two believers. This passage does not refer to two Christians. Because remember, the Christian marriage is a covenant marriage. A covenant marriage, you don't turn your back on. You don't leave that covenant. You choose to stay in that covenant. But let me say this. Let me say this. This is where the church comes into play. If you have two professing believers or confessing believers, it means they both say that they are Christians. So they're in a church and they're active in a church. And then all of a sudden, one member of that marriage decides, I don't want to be in this marriage anymore. And they go to step out of that marriage. They go to leave that marriage. Then the church has a responsibility. The church has a responsibility not to be judged during executioner, but the church has a responsibility to work in the life of that believer to strive to see them come back to repentance. We call it church discipline. 
Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17 says this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, that means if he repents, you have gained your brother. But if he does not, take one or two others along with you so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, that means if he refuses to repent, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. The purpose of church discipline is, uh, is, is repentance and reconciliation. The purpose of church discipline is to see the believer who is engaged in a very public, open, unconfessed, unrepented of sin come back to uh, faithfulness, to repent of their sin and come back to uh, the body of Christ, to come back to the church, repenting of their sin and moving past that sin. That's the goal of church discipline. The, the goal of church discipline is to be done in love and in grace and in kindness, but also in boldness and in truth, hoping to see that believer who is whatever the sin may be, who's engaged in this public sin, to repent and come back to faith. Now, well, let me just say this, kind of continue on with this idea of church discipline. He says, Jesus says, that if they repent, that is great. You've regained your brother. But if they do not repent, if their heart hardens and they continue to say, I'm going to keep doing what I want. I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care what God's word says. I'm going to do what I think is right for me, whatever their motivation may be. And they continue on in their sin. Ultimately, he says to treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector. What that means is you treat them as though they do not know Jesus Christ. You assume that by their actions, they are making a declaration that they do not know Jesus Christ. And so you treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector, meaning you pray for them, that, they, that God saves them, you share the gospel with them, you love them, you show them grace, mercy, and compassion, hoping that God grabs hold of their heart and hoping that God draws them to salvation and that God changes their lives. Now, let me just say this as kind of a caveat. Why this is the, the best thing to do. Because it's not always the easiest thing. It's not always the easiest thing to confront someone with their sin. It's not always the most comfortable thing to have to do this, especially if it gets to the point where you have to bring it before the church because it's, it is uncomfortable, but it is good. And here's why. Jesus talks about the church or the body of Christ being uh, a field. He talks about the tares and the wheat, that, that there are some that are within the body of Christ that even call themselves Christians that have, have never made a, a public, or not, not that made a public declaration of faith, but there's never been a genuine and honest repenting of their sins and placing their faith in Jesus. There are tares among the wheat. There are the, the weeds mixed in there with the wheat. And what you want is you want to see that the, the, the tares, you want to see the weeds turned into wheat. You want to see a transformation. You want to see their lives changed. And so if you have someone who claims to be a Christian, engage in sin and be completely unrepentant, then there's really two ways you can handle that as a Christian. You can say, you know what? They prayed a prayer. They, they, they got baptized. I'm just going to believe that they're saved, even though they're not living like it, even though they're not acting like it, even then there's, there's no desire for repentance. There's no desire to obey God. There's no desire to, to live for God. They're just doing their own thing. I'm just going to hope that they really are saved. Now, the chance that they are saved, everything works out fine. But what if they're not? 
What if they're not, and they live their whole life living in sin, but still thinking that they're saved because they prayed a prayer one time, though they never genuinely gave their life, they genuinely never surrendered their hearts to Jesus Christ, then their eternity, their eternity is judgment. But if the church does what the church is supposed to do, then instead of just assuming people are saved when their actions say differently, we assume that they're not saved, and we don't do so in judgment. We do so in love, hoping and praying and begging that God would save them and change their lives so that their eternity will be settled with him. Church discipline is a good thing. It might not be the most comfortable thing, but it is a good God-glorifying, God-honoring, positive, impactful thing on the person who is engaged in sin because the end goal or the desire for the end goal, whether it's repentance or whether it's treating them as a lost person who needs Jesus and praying for them, the end goal is moving you closer to the gospel, moving you closer to Jesus, changing your life. That's where we want to go. And so that's why church discipline is a good thing. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Just because someone does a lot of good stuff and they're in the church, does not mean that they are believers. Salvation comes not from being part of the church. Salvation comes not from being a teacher. Salvation comes not from being a servant in the church. Salvation comes by placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and repenting of your sins. That alone is how we are saved. If we are trusting in anything else, a prior relationship, what our parents did, the fact that our granddad was a pastor, if we're trusting in anything else, our church attendance, the fact that we're here most days, if we are trusting in anything except for the, the, the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus and our faith and trust in that, then we do not have salvation. That's the point that Jesus is making. And that's the goal of church discipline is to grab those who are either in sin as believers or to grab those who are under the delusion of salvation and hopefully draw them back to the grace of God. So, why am I talking about this in this area of divorce between two Christians? Because if, a, if the church does what it's supposed to, well, here's our, our, our first blank from this. If the church does what it should, it can help a marriage between two believers be reconciled. If you have Jane Doe and John Doe, and John decides that, you know what, he's done with his marriage, he's, he's been a Sunday school teacher, he's been a deacon, he's been at the church, and he decides he's done with his marriage, he's found... Susie Doe over here, uh, and that's who he wants to be with now. So he's leaving his wife, he's leaving his kids, and the church comes alongside Susie, says, We're gonna, or Jane, I get my names mixed up, but this one right here, the one that he's married to, the church comes along and says, Hey, look, we're gonna pray for you, and we're gonna do what, the, what God has called the church to do. So the pastors and the deacons and the church begin to go to John and begin to say, John, look, you understand that what you're doing, that it is sinful, that it is not what God has called us to do or called you to be or who God has called you to be. If he responds with repentance, he says, You know what? You're right. I gave into temptation, I sinned, I did what I should not have done. 
I'm sorry, let me confess to God, let me go back to confess to my wife, then that marriage is at least moving in the direction of reconciliation. That marriage is now going to move in the direction that it should, so there can be reconciliation between the husband and the wife. First, there's reconciliation between the husband and God. Then there's reconciliation between the husband and the wife. When the church does what it should, then it works in that marriage for that marriage to be reconciled. Secondly, if the church does what it should, it can help free a believer from undeserved guilt. Jane Doe, John Doe. John chases after Susie. The church goes to John. John, you know what you're doing is sin. You know what you're doing God has not called us to do. As your brother in Christ, we're begging you to repent. John says, no, I don't want to repent. So they do it again. John says, no, I don't want to repent. They go to John again and say, I don't want you to, or I don't want to repent. They take it to the church. They say, Calvary Baptist Church, John Doe over here. We've gone to him multiple times the way the Bible's commanded us to. He still refuses to uh, repent. And we, 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 to the church, to the church family, we say, we need to be praying for him for repentance. If he still does not repent, then we're going to remove him from membership. We're going to remove him from the role. He's not going to be a member of our church anymore because the Bible calls us to view him as though he is an unbeliever. And as an unbeliever, we want to pray for his salvation. We want to pray that, he, that God saves him and draws him to himself. But what that does for Jane over here is Jane doesn't have to live under that guilt of what could I have done differently? What did I do wrong? Is this my fault? Could I have done more? God places the guilt on John Doe over here who has chosen to abandon the marriage. And because the church has done what it has done, we are biblically to consider him an unbeliever. So therefore, Jane, because her husband is considered an unbeliever by his actions, by his refusal to repent, she falls under the initial question of the passage, what do you do if an unbeliever leaves the marriage or abandons the marriage? But if the church fails in its responsibility, if the church fails in what God has called the church to be, if the church fails in its role, then there's a lot of questions and there's a lot of guilt. There is a lot of, of, of uncertainty still left floating around. This is why we take the Bible as a whole. This is why we don't pick and choose what we want to believe. This is why as a church, as a body, we strive to do and be all that God has called us to do and to be. So let's close with this. Remember, if you are divorced, God still loves you, and grace is still extended towards you. Not outside of God's love and God's grace. You are not unusable by God. You are not ineffective to be used by God. And you are not a second-class Christian. If you are divorced, God still loves you. If you are remarried, as long as there's been that confession of adultery, your marriage is perfectly uh, acceptable by God, according to what Jesus Christ himself said, and God still loves you, and you're, you can still be used. You're not second class. God's love and God's grace covers you the same way it does with any other believer. And then I want to close with this. Divorce is never the goal for marriage, but if it happens... Know that God's love and grace is bigger than any sin or any failure that will ever enter into our lives. God's grace is bigger. God's love is bigger. It is bigger than lying. It is bigger than theft. It is bigger than murder. It is bigger than adultery. And it is bigger than divorce. 
The only sin that God has said he would not forgive is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Every other sin that we could ever commit, God has said, if you come to me, if you confess it, if you repent of it, I will forgive you and cleanse you of it. We are not under guilt. We are not under shame. We are under grace.